You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Hey everyone, hope you're all doing well out there. It's me, D.D. Spitzer, and we are back with more Black Clock Audio Tales. I mean, we're back with more uh, People's Guide to the... No, no, this is um, Articulate... No, which podcast is this? That's right, Oleander Book Club. Not Radio Free Oleander. Uh, here we go, Lupin. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 6. The Seven of Hearts, Part 2. We were beginning to see a little light coming out of the darkness that surrounded us, and an unexpected light was thrown on certain points. But other points yet remained obscure. For instance, the finding of the two Seven of Hearts. Perhaps I was unnecessarily concerned about those two cards, whose seven punctured spots had appeared to me under such startling circumstances. Yet I could not refrain from asking myself, what role will they play in the drama? What importance do they bear? What conclusion must be drawn from the fact that the submarine constructed from the plans of Louis Lacombe bore the name of Seven of Hearts? D'Esprit gave little thought to the other two cards. He devoted all his attention to another problem which he considered more urgent. He was seeking the famous hiding-place. "'And who knows?' said he. "'I may find the letters that Salvaton did not find. By inadvertence, perhaps. It is improbable that the Varin brothers would have removed from a spot which they deemed inaccessible the weapon which was so valuable to them.' And he continued the search." in a short time the large room held no more secrets for him so he extended his investigations to the other rooms he examined the interior and the exterior the stones of the foundation the bricks in the walls he raised the slates of the roof one day he came with a pickaxe and a spade gave me the spade kept the pickaxe pointed to the adjacent vacant lots and said come I followed him, but I lacked his enthusiasm. He divided the vacant land into several sections, which he examined in turn. At last, in a corner, at the angle formed by the walls of two neighboring proprietors, a small pile of earth and gravel covered with briars and grass attracted his attention. He attacked it. I was obliged to help him. For an hour, under a hot sun, we labored without success. I was discouraged, but D'Esprit urged me on. His ardor was as strong as ever. At last, D'Esprit's pickaxe unearthed some bones, the remains of a skeleton to which some scraps of clothing still hung. Suddenly I turned pale. I had discovered, sticking in the earth, a small piece of iron cut in the form of a rectangle, on which I thought I could see red spots. I stooped and picked it up. That little iron plate was the exact size of a playing card, and the red spots, made with red lead, were arranged upon it in a manner similar to the seven of hearts, and each spot was pierced with a round hole similar to the perforations in the two playing cards. Listen, D'Esprit, I have had enough of this. You can stay if it interests you, but I am going. Was that simply the expression of my excited nerves? or was it the result of a laborious task executed under a burning sun? I know that I trembled as I walked away, and that I went to bed, where I remained forty-eight hours, 
restless and feverish, haunted by skeletons that danced around me and threw their bleeding hearts at my head. D'Esprit was faithful to me. He came to my house every day and remained three or four hours, which he spent in the large room, ferreting, thumping, tapping. "'The letters are here in this room,' he said from time to time. "'They are here. I will stake my life on it.' On the morning of the third day I arose, feeble yet, but cured. A substantial breakfast cheered me up. But a letter that I received that afternoon contributed more than anything else to my complete recovery, and aroused in me a lively curiosity. This was the letter. Monsieur, the drama, the first act of which transpired on the night of 22 June, is now drawing to a close. Force of circumstances compel me to bring the two principal actors in that drama face to face, and I wish that meeting to take place in your house, if you will be so kind as to give me the use of it for this evening from nine o'clock to eleven. It will be advisable to give your servant leave of absence for the evening, and perhaps you will be so kind as to leave the field open to the two adversaries. You will remember that when I visited your house on the night of 22 June, I took excellent care of your property. I feel that I would do you an injustice if I should doubt for one moment your absolute discretion in this affair. Your devoted Salvatore. I was amused at the facetious tone of his letter, and also at the whimsical nature of his request. There was a charming display of confidence and candor in his language, and nothing in the world could have induced me to deceive him or to repay his confidence with ingratitude. I gave my servant a theatre ticket, and he left the house at eight o'clock. A few minutes later, D'Esprit arrived. I showed him the letter. "'Well,' said he, "'well, I have left the garden gate unlocked, so anyone can enter.' "'And you, are you going away?' "'Not at all. I intend to stay right here.' "'But he asks you to go.' "'But I am not going. I will be discreet, but I am resolved to see what takes place.' <laughs> ma foi exclaimed d'esprit laughing you are right and i shall stay with you i shouldn't like to miss it we were interrupted by the sound of the doorbell here already said d'esprit twenty minutes ahead of time incredible i went to the door and ushered in the visitor it was madame andermatt she was faint and nervous and in a stammering voice she ejaculated my husband is coming. He has an appointment. They intend to give him the letters. How do you know? I asked. By chance. A message came from my husband while we were at dinner. The servant gave it to me by mistake. My husband grabbed it quickly, but he was too late. I had read it. You read it? Yes, it was something like this. At nine o'clock this evening, be at Boulevard Maillot with the papers connected with the affair. In exchange, the letters. So, after dinner, I hastened here. Unknown to your husband? Yes. What do you think about it? asked Esprit, turning to me. I think, as you do, that Monsieur Andermatt is one of the invited guests. Yes, but for what purpose? That is what we are going to find out. I led the men to a large room. The three of us could hide comfortably behind the velvet chimney-mantel and observe all that should happen in the room. We seated ourselves there, with Madame Andermatt in the centre. The clock struck nine. A few minutes later the garden gate creaked upon its hinges. 
I confess that I was greatly agitated. I was about to learn the key to the mystery. The startling events of the last few weeks were about to be explained, and under my eyes the last battle was going to be fought. D'Esprit seized the hand of Madame Andermatt and said to her, "'Not a word, not a movement. Whatever you may see or hear, keep quiet.' Someone entered. It was Alfred Varin. I recognized him at once, owing to the close resemblance he bore to his brother Etienne. There was the same slouching gait, the same cadaverous face covered with a black beard. He entered with the nervous air of a man who is accustomed to fear the presence of traps and ambushes, who scents and avoids them. He glanced about the room, and I had the impression that the chimney, masked with a velvet portière, did not please him. He took three steps in our direction, when something caused him to turn and walk toward the old mosaic king, with the flowing beard and flamboyant sword which he examined minutely, mounting on a chair and following with his fingers the outlines of the shoulders and head, and feeling certain parts of the face. Suddenly he leapt from the chair and walked away from it. He had heard the sound of approaching footsteps. M. Andermatt appeared at the door. "'You! "'You!' exclaimed the banker. "'Was it you who brought me here?' "'I? By, "'By no means,' protested Varin, "'in a rough, jerky voice that reminded me of his brother. "'On the contrary, it was your letter that brought me here.' "'My letter? "'A letter signed by you, in which you offered—' "'I never wrote to you,' declared M. Andermatt. "'You did not write to me.' Instinctively, Varin was put on his guard, not against the banker, but against the unknown enemy who had drawn him into this trap. A second time he looked in our direction, then walked toward the door. But M. Andermatt barred his passage. "'Well, where are you going, Varin? "'There is something about this affair I don't like. "'I am going home. Good evening.' "'One moment.' "'No need of that, M. Andermatt. "'I have nothing to say to you.' "'But I have something to say to you, and this is a good time to say it. "'Let me pass. No, you will not pass.' Varin recoiled before the resolute attitude of the banker, as he muttered, "'Well, then be quick about it.' One thing astonished me, and I have no doubt my two companions experienced a similar feeling. Why was Salvatore not there? Was he not a necessary party at this conference?' or was he satisfied to let these two adversaries fight it out between themselves? At all events, his absence was a great disappointment, although it did not detract from the dramatic strength of the situation. After a moment, M. Andermatt approached Varin, and face to face, eye to eye, said, "'Now after all these years, and when you have nothing more to fear, you can answer me candidly. What have you done with Louis Lacombe?' What a question! As if I knew anything about him! You do know. You and your brother were his constant companions, almost lived with him in his very house. You knew all about his plans and his work. And the last night I ever saw Louis Lacombe, when I parted with him at my door, I saw two men slinking away in the shadows of the trees. That I am ready to swear to. Well, what has that to do with me? The two men were you and your brother. Prove it. 
The best proof is that two days later you yourself showed me the papers and the plans that belonged to Lacombe and offered to sell them. How did these papers come into your possession? I have already told you, Monsieur Andermatt, that we found them on Louis Lacombe's table the morning after his disappearance. That is a lie. Prove it. The law will prove it. Why did you not appeal to the law? Why? Oh, why? stammered the banker with a slight display of emotion. You know very well, Monsieur Andermatt, if you had the least certainty of our guilt, our little threat would not have stopped you. What threat? Those letters? Do you suppose I ever gave those letters a moment's thought? If you did not care for the letters, why did you offer me thousands of francs for their return? And why did you have my brother and me trapped like wild beasts? To recover the plans. Nonsense! You wanted the letters. You knew that as soon as you had the letters in your possession, you could denounce us. <laughs> oh, no, I couldn't part with them. He laughed heartily, but stopped suddenly and said, But enough of this. We are merely going over old ground. We make no headway. We had better let things stand as they are. We will not let them stand as they are, said the banker. And since you have referred to the letters, let me tell you that you will not leave this house until you deliver up those letters. I shall go when I please. You will not. Be careful, Monsieur Andermatt. I warn you. I say you shall not go. We will see about that, cried Varin, in such a rage that Madame Andermatt could not suppress a cry of fear. Varin must have heard it, for he now tried to force his way out. Monsieur Andermatt pushed him back. Then I saw him put his hand into his coat pocket. For the last time let me pass, he cried. The letters first. Varin drew a revolver, and pointing it at M. Andermatt, said, Yes or no? The banker stooped quickly. There was the sound of a pistol shot. The weapon fell from Varin's hand. I was amazed. The shot was fired close to me. It was Daspry who had fired it at Varin, causing him to drop the revolver. In a moment, Daspry was standing between the two men, facing Varin. He said to him with a sneer, you were lucky, my friend, very lucky. I fired at your hand and struck only the revolver. Both of them looked at him, surprised. Then he turned to the banker and said, I beg your pardon, monsieur, for meddling in your business, but really you play a very poor game. Let me hold the cards. Turning again to Varin, Daspry said, It's between us two, comrade, and play fair if you please. Hearts are trumps, and I play the seven. Then Daspry held up before Varin's bewildered eyes the little iron plate marked with the seven red spots. It was a terrible shock to Varin. With livid features, staring eyes, and an air of intense agony, the man seemed to be hypnotized at the sight of it. "'Who are you?' he gasped. "'One who meddles in other people's business, down to the very bottom. "'What do you want?' "'What you brought here to-night?' "'I brought nothing.' "'Yes, you did, or you wouldn't have come. "'This morning you received an invitation to come here at nine o'clock "'and bring with you all the papers held by you. "'You are here. Where are the papers?' 
There was in Despris's voice and manner a tone of authority that I did not understand. His manner was usually quite mild and conciliatory. Absolutely conquered, Varin placed his hand on one of his pockets and said, The papers are here. All of them? Yes. All that you took from Louis Lacombe and afterwards sold to Major von Lieben? Yes. Are these the copies or the originals? I have the originals. How much do you want for them? One hundred thousand francs. You are crazy, said Despris. Why, the major gave you only twenty thousand, and that was like money thrown into the sea, as the boat was a failure at the preliminary trials. They didn't understand the plans. The plans are not complete. Then why do you ask me for them? Because I want them. I offer you five thousand francs, not a sou more. Ten thousand, not a sou less. Agreed, said Despris, who now turned to M. Andermatt and said, Monsieur will kindly sign a check for the amount. But I haven't got your checkbook. Here it is. Astounded, M. Andermatt examined the checkbook that Despris handed to him. It is mine, he gasped. How does that happen? No idle words, monsieur, if you please. You have merely to sign. The banker took out his fountain pen, filled out the check, and signed it. Varin held out his hand for it. Put down your hand, said Despris. There is something more. Then to the banker he said, You asked for some letters, did you not? Yes, a package of letters. Where are they, Varin? I haven't got them. Where are they, Varin? I don't know. My brother had charge of them. They are hidden in this room. In that case, you know where they are. How should I know? Was it not you who found the hiding place? You appear to be as well informed as Salvatore. The letters are not in the hiding place. They are. Open it. Varin looked at him defiantly. Were not Despri and Salvatore the same person? Everything pointed to that conclusion. If so, Varin risked nothing in disclosing a hiding place already known. Open it, repeated Despri. I have not got the Seven of Hearts. Yes, here it is, said Despri, handing him the iron plate. Varin recoiled in terror and cried, No, no, I will not! Never mind replied Despris, as he walked toward the bearded king, climbed on a chair, and applied the seven of hearts to the lower part of the sword in such a manner that the edges of the iron plate coincided exactly with the two edges of the sword. Then, with the assistance of an awl which he introduced alternately into each of the seven holes, he pressed upon seven of the little mosaic stones. As he pressed upon the seventh one, a clicking sound was heard, and the entire bust of the king turned upon a pivot, disclosing a large opening lined with steel. It was really a fireproof safe. You can see, Varin, the safe is empty. So I see. Then my brother has taken out the letters. Despris stepped down from the chair, approached Varin, and said, Now no more nonsense with me. There is another hiding place. Where is it? There is none. Is it money you want? How much? Ten thousand. Monsieur Andermatt, are those letters worth ten thousand francs to you? 
"'Yes,' said the banker firmly. Varin closed the safe, took the seven of hearts, and placed it again on the sword at the same spot. He thrust the awl into each of the seven holes. There was the same clicking sound, but this time, strange to relate, it was only a portion of the safe that revolved on the pivot, disclosing quite a small safe that was built within the door of the larger one. The packet of letters was here, tied with a tape and sealed. Varin handed the packet to Daspry. The latter turned to the banker and asked, "'Is the cheque ready, Monsieur Andermatt?' "'Yes.' "'And you have also the last document that you received from Louis Lacombe, the one that completes the plans of the submarine?' "'Yes.' "'The exchange was made. Daspry pocketed the document and the cheques, and offered the packet of letters to Monsieur Andermatt. "'This is what you wanted, Monsieur.' The banker hesitated a moment, as if he were afraid to touch those cursed letters that he had sought so eagerly. Then, with a nervous movement, he took them. Close to me I heard a moan. I grasped Madame Andermatt's hand. It was cold. "'I believe, monsieur,' said Daspry to the banker, "'that our business is ended.' "'Oh, no thanks. It was only by a mere chance that I have been able to do you a good turn. Good night.' M. Andermatt retired. He carried with him the letters written by his wife to Louis Lacombe. "'Marvellous!' exclaimed Aspry, delighted. "'Everything is coming our way. Now we have only to close our little affair, comrade. You have the papers? Here they are, all of them.' Daspry examined them carefully, and then placed them in his pocket. "'Quite right. You have kept your word,' he said. "'But—' "'But what?' "'The two cheques, the money,' said Varin eagerly. "'Well, you have a great deal of assurance, my man. "'How dare you ask such a thing?' "'I ask only what is due to me.' "'Can you ask pay for returning papers that you stole?' "'Well, I think not.' Varin was beside himself. He trembled with rage. His eyes were bloodshot. "'The money! The twenty thousand! he stammered. "'Impossible. I need it myself.' "'The money!' "'Come, be reasonable, and don't get excited. It won't do you any good.' Daspry seized his arm so forcibly that Varin uttered a cry of pain. Daspry continued, "'Now you can go. The air will do you good. Perhaps you want me to show you the way. Ah, yes, we will go together to the vacant lot near here, and I will show you a little mound of earth and stones, and under it—' "'That is false! That is false!' "'Oh, no, it is true. That little iron plate with the seven spots on it came from there. Louis Lacombe always carried it, and you buried it with the body, and with some other things that will prove very interesting to a judge and jury.' Varin covered his face with his hands and muttered, "'All right, I am beaten. Say no more. But I want to ask you one question. I should like to know—' "'What is it?' "'Was there a—was there a little casket in the large safe?' "'Yes.' "'Was it there on the night of 22 June?' "'Yes.' "'What did it contain?' "'Everything that the Varin brothers had put in it. "'A very pretty collection of diamonds and pearls "'picked up here and there by the said brothers.' "'And did you take it?' "'Of course I did. Do you blame me?' 
I understand. It was the disappearance of that casket that caused my brother to kill himself. Probably. The disappearance of your correspondence was not a sufficient motive, but the disappearance of the casket. Is that all you wish to ask me? One thing more. Your name? You ask that with an idea of seeking revenge. Parble, the tables may be turned. Today you are on top. Tomorrow... It will be you. I hope so. Your name? Arsène Lupin. Arsène Lupin. The man staggered as though stunned by a heavy blow. Those two words had deprived him of all hope. Daspry laughed and said, Ah! <laughs> Did you imagine that a Monsieur Durand or Dupont could manage an affair like this? No, it required the skill and cunning of Arsène Lupin. Now that you have my name, go and prepare your revenge. Arsène Lupin will wait for you. Then he pushed the bewildered Varin through the door. D'esprit, d'esprit, I cried, pushing aside the curtain. He ran to me. What? What's the matter? Madame Andermatt is ill. He hastened to her, caused her to inhale some salts, and while caring for her, questioned me. Well, what did it? The letters of Louis Lacombe that you gave to her husband. He struck his forehead and said, Did she think that I could do such a thing? But of course she would, imbecile that I am. Madame Andermatt was now revived. D'Esprit took from his pocket a small package exactly similar to the one that Monsieur Andermatt had carried away. Here are your letters, madame. These are the genuine letters. But the others? The others are the same, rewritten by me and carefully worded. Your husband will not find anything objectionable in them, and will never suspect the substitution since they were taken from the safe in his presence. But the handwriting... There is no handwriting that cannot be imitated. She thanked him in the same words she might have used to a man in her own social circle, so I concluded that she had not witnessed the final scene between Varin and Arsène Lupin. But the surprising revelation caused me considerable embarrassment. Lupin! My club companion was none other than Arsène Lupin. I could not realize it, but he said, quite at his ease, You can say farewell to Jean d'Esprit. Ah! Yes, Jean d'Esprit is going on a long journey. I shall send him to Morocco. There he may find a death worthy of him. I may say that that is his expectation. But Arsène Lupin will remain. Oh, decidedly. Arsène Lupin is simply at the threshold of his career, and he expects... I was impelled by curiosity to interrupt him, and leading him away from the hearing of Madame Andermatt, I asked... Did you discover the smaller safe yourself, the one that held the letters? Yes, after a great deal of trouble. I found it yesterday afternoon while you were asleep. And yet God knows it was simple enough. But the simplest things are the ones that usually escape our notice. Then, showing me the seven of hearts, he added, Of course I had guessed that, in order to open the larger safe, this card must be placed on the sword of the Mosaic King. How did you guess that? quite easily. Through private information, I knew that fact when I came here on the evening of 22 June. After you left me? Yes, after turning the subject of our conversation to stories of crime and robbery, 
which were sure to reduce you to such a nervous condition that you would not leave your bed, but would allow me to complete my search uninterrupted. The scheme worked perfectly. Well, I knew when I came here that there was a casket concealed in a safe with a secret lock, and that the seven of hearts was the key to that lock. I had merely to place the card upon the spot that was obviously intended for it. An hour's examination showed me where the spot was. One hour? Observe the fellow in mosaic. The old emperor? That old emperor is an exact representation of the king of hearts on all playing cards. That's right. But how does the seven of hearts open the larger safe at one time, and the smaller safe at another time? And why did you open only the larger safe in the first instance? I mean on the night of 22 June. Why? Because I always placed the seven of hearts in the same way. I never changed the position, but yesterday I observed that by reversing the card, by turning it upside down, the arrangement of the seven spots on the mosaic was changed. Parbleu! Of course, parbleu, but a person has to think of those things. There is something else. You did not know the history of those letters until Madame Andermatt spoke of them before me? No, because I found in the safe, besides the casket, nothing but the correspondence of the two brothers, which disclosed their treachery in regard to the plans. Then it was by chance that you were led first to investigate the history of the two brothers, and then to search for the plans and documents relating to the submarine? Simply by chance. For what purpose did you make the search? <laughs> oh, Dieu! exclaimed Aspry, laughing. How deeply interested you are! The subject fascinates me. Very well. Presently, after I have escorted Madame Andermatt to a carriage, and dispatched a short story to the Echo de France, I will return and tell you all about it. He sat down and wrote one of those short, clear-cut articles which serve to amuse and mystify the public. Who does not recall the sensation that followed that article produced throughout the entire world? Arsène Lupin has solved the problem recently submitted by Salvatore. Having acquired possession of all the documents and original plans of the engineer Louis Lacombe, he has placed them in the hands of the Minister of Marine, and he has headed a subscription list for the purpose of presenting to the nation the first submarine constructed from those plans. His subscription is 20,000 francs. 20,000 francs? The checks of Monsieur Andermatt? I exclaimed, when he had given me the paper to read. Exactly. It was quite right that Varin should redeem his treachery. And that is how I made the acquaintance of Arsène Lupin. That is how I learned that Jean d'Aspry, a member of my club, was none other than Arsène Lupin, gentleman thief. That is how I formed very agreeable ties of friendship with that famous man, and thanks to the confidence with which he honoured me, how I became his very humble and faithful historiographer. End of chapter 6 Episode 6 coming up next, and remember, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about Oleander Book Club and Radio Free Oleander and anything else that we're currently putting out. We've also got Articulate Warbling and my personal project, uh, Johnny Smoothskin, The Ballad of. Okay, so I love these stories. Something else I love 
are the uh, old 70s cartoons from Japan about Lupin the Third. And yeah, that's uh, kind of the reason why I chose these, because I got into the stories actually because of the uh, manga and anime. And I love the uh, series uh, specials that come out from time to time. And uh, yeah, enough of that. Remember, rate, review, subscribe, check us out on social media at Facebook under... Oh, excuse me. Too much Halloween candy that I'm just, like, found in the studio. Uh, yeah, uh, social media, Facebook group, uh, 11.30 a.m., KZOM. Here we go. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter 7. Madame Imbert's Safe. At three o'clock in the morning, there were still half a dozen carriages in front of one of those small houses which form only the side of the Boulevard Berthier. The door of that house opened, and a number of guests, male and female, emerged. The majority of them entered their carriages and were quickly driven away, leaving behind only two men who walked down Courcelles, where they parted, as one of them lived in that street. The other decided to return on foot as far as the Porte Maillot. It was a beautiful winter's night, clear and cold, a night on which a brisk walk is agreeable and refreshing but at the end of a few minutes he had the disagreeable impression that he was being followed. Turning around, he saw a man skulking amongst the trees. He was not a coward, yet he felt it advisable to increase his speed. Then his pursuer commenced to run, and he deemed it prudent to draw his revolver and face him. But he had no time. The man rushed at him and attacked him violently. Immediately they were engaged in a desperate struggle, wherein he felt that his unknown assailant had the advantage. He called for help, struggled, and was thrown down on a pile of gravel, seized by the throat, and gagged with a handkerchief that his assailant forced into his mouth. His eyes closed, and the man who was smothering him with his weight arose to defend himself against an unexpected attack. A blow from a cane and a kick from a boot. The man uttered two cries of pain and fled, limping and cursing. Without deigning to pursue the fugitive, the new arrival stooped over the prostrate man and inquired, "'Are you hurt, monsieur?' He was not injured, but he was dazed and unable to stand. His rescuer procured a carriage, placed him in it, and accompanied him to his house on the Avenue de la Grande Armée. On his arrival there, quite recovered, he overwhelmed his saviour with thanks. "'I owe you my life, monsieur, and I shall not forget it.' do not wish to alarm my wife at this time of night, but tomorrow she will be pleased to thank you personally. Come and breakfast with us. My name is Ludovic Imbert. May I ask yours? Certainly, monsieur. And he handed monsieur Imbert a card bearing the name Arsène Lupin. At that time, Arsène Lupin did not enjoy the celebrity which the Caron affair, his escape from the prison de la Santé, and other brilliant exploits afterwards gained for him. He had not even used the name of Arsène Lupin. The name was specially invented to designate the rescuer of Monsieur Imbert. That is to say, it was in that affair that Arsène Lupin was baptized. Fully armed and ready for the fray, it is true, but lacking the resources and authority which command success, Arsène Lupin was then merely an apprentice in a profession wherein he soon became a master. 
with what a thrill of joy he recalled the invitation he received that night at last he had reached his goal at last he had undertaken a task worthy of his strength and skill the Enver millions what a magnificent feast for an appetite like his he prepared a special toilet for that occasion a shabby frock coat baggy trousers a frayed silk hat well-worn collar and cuffs all quite correct in form but bearing the unmistakable stamp of poverty his cravat was a black ribbon pinned with a false diamond thus accoutred he descended the stairs of the house in which he lived at montmartre at the third floor without stopping he rapped on a closed door with the head of his cane he walked to the exterior boulevards a tram-car was passing he boarded it and someone who had been following him took a seat beside him it was the lodger who occupied the room on the third floor a moment later this man said to lupin well governor well it is all fixed how i am going there to breakfast you breakfast there certainly why not i rescued m ludovic imbert from certain death at your hands m imbert is not devoid of gratitude he invited me to breakfast there was a brief silence then the other said but you are not going to throw up the scheme my dear boy said lupin when i arranged that little case of assault and battery when i took the trouble at three o'clock in the morning to rap you with my cane and tap you with my boot at the risk of injuring my only friend it was not my intention to forego the advantages to be gained from a rescue so well arranged and executed oh no not at all but the strange rumours we hear about their fortune never mind about that for six months i have worked on this affair investigated it studied it questioned the servants the money-lenders and men of straw for six months i have shadowed the husband and wife consequently i know what i am talking about whether the fortune came to them from old brawford as they pretend or from some other source i do not care i know that it is a reality that it exists and some day it will be mine one hundred millions let us say ten or even five that is enough they have a safe full of bonds and there will be the devil to pay if i can't get my hands on them the tram-car stopped at the place de l'étoile the man whispered to lupin what am i to do now nothing at present you will hear from me there is no hurry five minutes later arsene lupin was ascending the magnificent flight of stairs in the imbert mansion and m imbert introduced him to his wife madame gervaise imbert was a short plump woman and very talkative she gave lupin a cordial welcome i desired that we should be alone to entertain our saviour she said from the outset they treated our saviour as an old and valued friend by the time dessert was served their friendship was well cemented and private confidences were being exchanged arsene related the story of his life the life of his father as a magistrate the sorrows of his childhood and his present difficulties gervaise in turn spoke of her youth her marriage the kindness of the aged brawford the hundred millions that she had inherited the obstacles that prevented her from obtaining the enjoyment of her inheritance the money she had been obliged to borrow at an exorbitant rate of interest her endless contentions with Brawford's nephews, and the litigation, the injunctions, in fact, everything. Just think of it, Monsieur Lupin. The bonds are there in my husband's office, 
and if we detach a single coupon, we lose everything. They are there in our safe, and we dare not touch them. Monsieur Lupin shivered at the bare idea of his proximity to so much wealth. Yet he felt quite certain that Monsieur Lupin would never suffer from the same difficulty as his fair hostess, who declared she dare not touch the money. Ah, oh, they are there, he repeated to himself. They are there. A friendship formed under such circumstances soon led to closer relations. When discreetly questioned, Arsène Lupin confessed his poverty and distress. Immediately the unfortunate young man was appointed private secretary to the Ambers, husband and wife, at a salary of one hundred francs a month. He was to come to the house every day and receive orders for his work, and a room on the second floor was set apart as his office. This room was directly over Monsieur Ambert's office. Arsène soon realized that his position as secretary was essentially a sinecure. During the first two months, he had only four important letters to recopy, and was called only once to M. Ambert's office. Consequently, he had only one opportunity to contemplate, officially, the Ambert safe. Moreover, he noticed that the secretary was not invited to the social functions of the employer, but he did not complain, as he preferred to remain modestly in the shade and maintain his peace and freedom. However, he was not wasting any time. From the beginning he made clandestine visits to M. Ambert's office and paid his respects to the safe, which was hermetically closed. It was an immense block of iron and steel, cold and stern in appearance, which could not be forced open by the ordinary tools of the burglar's trade. But Arsène Lupin was not discouraged. Where force fails, cunning prevails, he said to himself. The essential thing is to be on the spot when the opportunity occurs. In the meantime, I must watch and wait. He made immediately some preliminary preparations. After careful soundings made upon the floor of his room, he introduced a lead pipe, which penetrated the ceiling of M. Ambert's office at a point between the two screeds of the cornice. By means of this pipe, he hoped to see and hear what transpired in the room below. Henceforth, he passed his days stretched at full length upon the floor. He frequently saw the Ambert's holding a consultation in front of the safe, investigating books and papers. When they turned the combination lock, he tried to learn the figures and the number of turns they made to the right and left. He watched their movements. He sought to catch their words. There was also a key necessary to complete the opening of the safe. What did they do with it? Did they hide it? One day he saw them leave the room without locking the safe. He descended the stairs quickly and boldly entered the room. But they had returned. Oh, excuse me, he said. I made a mistake in the door. Come in, Monsieur Lupin, come in, cried Madame Imbert. Are you not at home here? We want your advice. What bonds should we sell? The foreign securities or the government annuities? But the injunction, said Lupin with surprise. Oh, it doesn't cover all the bonds. She opened the door of the safe and withdrew a package of bonds. But her husband protested. No, no, Gervaise, it would be foolish to sell the foreign bonds. They are going up whilst the annuities are as high as they ever will be. What do you think, my dear friend? The dear friend had no opinion, yet he advised the sacrifice of the annuities. Then she withdrew another package, and from it she took a paper at random. It proved to be a three percent annuity worth two thousand francs. Ludovic placed the package of bonds in his pocket. 
that afternoon accompanied by his secretary he sold the annuities to a stockbroker and realized forty-six thousand francs whatever madame imbert might have said about it arsene lupin did not feel at home in the imbert house on the contrary his position there was a peculiar one he learned that the servants did not even know his name they called him monsieur ludovic always spoke of him in the same way you will tell monsieur has monsieur arrived why that mysterious appellation moreover after their first outburst of enthusiasm the Imbert seldom spoke to him and although treating him with the consideration due to a benefactor they gave him little or no attention they appeared to regard him as an eccentric character who did not like to be disturbed, and they respected his isolation as if it were a stringent rule on his part. On one occasion, while passing through the vestibule, he heard Madame Imbert say to the two gentlemen, Such a barbarian! Very well, he said to himself, I am a barbarian. And without seeking to solve the question of their strange conduct, he proceeded with the execution of his own plans. He had decided that he could not depend on chance, nor on the negligence of Madame Imbert, who carried the key of the safe, and who, unlocking the safe, invariably scattered the letters forming the combination of the lock. Consequently, he must act for himself. Finally, an incident precipitated matters. It was the vehement campaign instituted against the Imberts by certain newspapers that accused the Imberts of swindling. Arsène Lupin was present at certain family conferences when this new vicissitude was discussed. He decided that if he waited much longer, he would lose everything. During the next five days, instead of leaving the house about six o'clock, according to his usual habit, he locked himself in his room. It was supposed that he had gone out, but he was lying on the floor, surveying the office of M. Imbert. During those five evenings, the favorable opportunity that he awaited did not take place. He left the house about midnight by a side door to which he held the key. But on the sixth day, he learned that the Imberts, actuated by the malevolent insinuations of their enemies, proposed to make an inventory of the contents of the safe. They will do it tonight, thought Lupin. And truly, after dinner, Imbert and his wife retired to the office and commenced to examine the books of account and the securities contained in the safe. Thus, one hour after another passed away. He heard the servants go upstairs to their rooms. No one now remained on the first floor. Midnight. The Imbars were still at work. I must get to work, murmured Lupin. He opened his window. It opened on a court. Outside, everything was dark and quiet. He took from his desk a knotted rope, fastened it to the balcony in front of his window, and quietly descended as far as the window below, which was that of the Imbars' office. He stood upon the balcony for a moment, motionless, with attentive ear and watchful eye, but the heavy curtains effectually concealed the interior of the room. He cautiously pushed on the double window. If no one had examined it, it ought to yield to the slightest pressure, for during the afternoon he had so fixed the bolt that it would not enter the staple. The window yielded to his touch. Then, with infinite care, he pushed it open sufficiently to admit his head. He parted the curtains a few inches, looked in, and saw M. Imbert and his wife sitting in front of the safe, deeply absorbed in their work and speaking softly to each other at rare intervals. He calculated the distance between him and them, 
considered the exact movements he would require to make in order to overcome them one after the other before they could call for help and he was about to rush upon them when madame Maybert said oh the room is getting quite cold i'm going to bed and you my dear i shall stay and finish finish why that will take you all night not at all an hour at the most she retired twenty minutes thirty minutes passed arsène pushed the window a little farther open the curtains shook he pushed once more m imbert turned and seeing the curtains blown by the wind he rose to close the window there was not a cry not the trace of struggle with a few precise movements and without causing him the least injury arsène stunned him wrapped the curtain about his head bound him hand and foot and did it all in such a manner that m imbert had no opportunity to recognize his assailant quickly he approached the safe seized two packages that he placed under his arm left the office and opened the servant's gate a carriage was stationed in the street take that first and follow me he said to the coachman he returned to the office and in two trips they emptied the safe then arsène went to his own room removed the rope and all other traces of his clandestine work a few hours later arsène lupin and his assistant examined the stolen goods lupin was not disappointed as he had foreseen that the wealth of the imbers had been greatly exaggerated it did not consist of hundreds of millions nor even tens of millions yet it amounted to a very respectable sum and lupin expressed his satisfaction of course he said there will be a considerable loss when we come to sell the bonds as we will have to dispose of them surreptitiously at reduced prices in the meantime they will rest quietly in my desk awaiting a propitious moment arsène saw no reason why he should not go to the imbert house the next day but a perusal of the morning papers revealed this startling fact ludovitch and gervaise imbert had disappeared when the officers of the law seized the safe and opened it they found there what arsène lupin had left nothing such are the facts and i learned a sequel to them one day when arsène lupin was in a confidential mood he was pacing to and fro in my room with a nervous step and a feverish eye that were unusual to him after all i said to him it was your most successful venture without making a direct reply he said there are some impenetrable secrets connected with that affair some obscure points that escaped my comprehension for instance what caused their flight why did they not take advantage of the help i unconsciously gave them it would have been so simple to say the hundred millions were in the safe they are no longer there because they have been stolen they lost their nerve yes that is it they lost their nerve on the other hand it is true what is true oh nothing what was the meaning of lupin's reticence it was quite obvious that he had not told me everything there was something he was loath to tell his conduct puzzled me it must indeed be a very serious matter to cause such a man as arsène lupin even a momentary hesitation i threw out a few questions at random have you seen them since no and have you never experienced the slightest degree of pity for those unfortunate people i he exclaimed with a start his sudden excitement astonished me had i touched him on a sore spot i continued of course if you had not left them alone they might have been able to face the danger or at least made their escape with full pockets 
What do you mean? he said indignantly. I suppose you have an idea that my soul should be filled with remorse. Call it remorse or regrets, anything you like. They are not worth it. Have you no regrets or remorse for having stolen their fortune? What fortune? The packages of bonds you took from their safe. Oh, I stole their bonds, did I? I deprived them of a portion of their wealth. Is that my crime? Oh, my dear boy, you do not know the truth. You never imagined that those bonds were not worth the paper they were written on. Those bonds were false. They were counterfeit, every one of them. Do you understand? They were counterfeit. I looked at him astounded. Counterfeit? The four or five millions? Yes, counterfeit, he exclaimed in a fit of rage. Only so many scraps of paper. I couldn't have raised a sou on the whole of them. And you ask me if I have any remorse. They are the ones who should have remorse and pity. They played me for a simpleton, and I fell into their trap. I was their latest victim, their most stupid gull. He was affected by genuine anger, the result of malice and wounded pride. He continued, From start to finish I got the worst of it. Do you know the part I played in that affair, or rather the part they made me play? That of André Brawford. Yes, my dear boy, that is the truth, and I never suspected it. It was not until afterwards, on reading the newspapers, that the light finally dawned in my stupid brain. Whilst I was posing as his saviour, as the gentleman who had risked his life to rescue Monsieur Imbert from the clutches of an assassin, they were passing me off as Brawford. Wasn't that splendid? That eccentric individual who had a room on the second floor, that barbarian that was exhibited only at a distance, was Brawford, and Brawford was I. Thanks to me, and to the confidence that I inspired under the name of Brawford, they were enabled to borrow money from the bankers and other money-lenders. <laughs> what an experience for a novice! And I swear to you that I shall profit by the lesson. He stopped, seized my arm, and said to me, in a tone of exasperation, my dear fellow, this very moment, Gervais Imbert owes me fifteen hundred francs. I could not refrain from laughter. His rage was so grotesque. He was making a mountain out of a molehill. In a moment, he laughed himself and said, Yes, my boy, fifteen hundred francs. You must know that I had not received one sou of my promised salary. And more than that, she had borrowed from me the sum of fifteen hundred francs. All my youthful savings... And you know why? To devote the money to charity. I'm giving you a straight story. She wanted it for some poor people she was assisting, unknown to her husband. And my hard-earned money was wormed out of me by that silly pretense. Isn't it amusing, eh? Arsène Lupin done out of fifteen hundred francs by the fair lady from whom he stole four millions in counterfeit bonds. What a vast amount of time and patience and cunning I expended to achieve that result. It was the first time in my life that I was played for a fool, and I frankly confess that I was fooled that time to the Queen's taste. End of chapter 7 Ha ha ha, that Lupin is such a clever gentleman. Anyway, hey, thank you all for listening so much. So much for listening. Check us out, rate, review, subscribe. Go to pgttcm.com if you want to check out some of our old t-shirts. New t-shirts coming up soon. Just got to get that stuff done. You know, I haven't had any free time lately. Like, really, really, I've, I've been super busy. Anyway, check 
out uh, my other project, Johnny Smooth Skin, and also why not check out Articulate Warbling? Zach and Laura over in uh, Brighton, England, they're, they're, they're doing their best, uh, watching movies, reading books, and uh, telling you what they think about it. All right, thank you so much, everyone, and we'll talk to you later with more Lupins. You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio.